0: All right, well, good, good afternoon. Thank you that you guys are all able to come here. Um, a month or so ago, John tasked me with this opportunity to get to speak in front of you guys. Uh, it's been something that I'm very excited to be looking forward to. I've definitely been praying over you guys, as well as for my own sermon, as we were coming to this day. So I hope it's something that um, you leave with um, a clearer understanding of God's word. Uh, let's open up in prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for this afternoon, Lord. God, I thank you for the food that you provided for us. Um, we don't deserve anything, uh, let alone the delicious food that you did provide. But God, you are so good to your kids that you are overflowing with abundance for your church. God, we love you so much. Thank you for this message today. God, let me step aside and let your word shine through. Father, we love you so much. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna go through uh, uh, probably the, the first half or so maybe a little bit more, of Joshua 24. Uh, This is not going to be a discussion on post-mill theology. I know some were looking forward to it, but it will not be. Um, But even with that said, I hope that you guys still are able to glean some understanding of God's Word and that it applies to your life. So Joshua 24 is the last book in Joshua. It's Joshua's parting words to the people of Israel As he is about to go into glory. In his final chapter. Joshua reminds the people. Of what God has done for Israel. In the past. What God is doing with this current generation of Israel. It's an exhortation. To the nation. And finally it is his declaration. To Israel. We can get much for our lives today. From Joshua's word. uh, To his people. 3-400 years ago. And so as we go through. We're going to hit these four things, um, and hopefully we glean something from that. There are things for us to remember. There are going to be things for us to recognize. There's going to be an exhortation to us, and there is going to be, hopefully, a declaration from us in response. So starting at number one, we are to remember what God has done. So going to verse one in Joshua 24, it says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Stechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan, And made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob, and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterwards I brought you out." Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Euphrates and made the sea come up upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt and you lived in the wilderness a long time. For Israel, <laughs> they receive a history lesson of what the Lord has done for them. He also reminds Israel of the promises that he has kept with them, demonstrating he is upholding his part of the covenant that he made with them. These kept promises by the Lord strengthen the faith of those who have trusted in him. They could look back into their history and see how the same God that was currently leading them had also led and cared for the nation he had made covenants with. Many times in the Old Testament, we see Israel setting up stones as reminders of what God did for them. Genesis 28, Joshua 4, and 1 Samuel 7 all depict Israel setting up stones as a visible reminder as to what God had done for his people. These stones would be taken up, we saw in um Ex uh We saw that they had grabbed stones as they were crossing uh, the Red Sea. And those stones that they had taken, they had made up as a monument, as a remembrance to what God had done for them. They could only get those stones from the middle by God parting the sea and letting them through. For us, our rock is Christ. Through him, we can clearly see the Father keeping his word back in Genesis 3.15 referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, to provide man a way of escape from the sin that had enslaved humanity. The Father gives a people and sends the Son to redeem and atone for that people. The Son lives a righteous life, never breaking any of God's laws, suffers, dies, and raises himself up on the third day to secure the freedom for his people. The Spirit draws each of those who, whom the father has given to the son into repentance through the son's blood. The stone analogy continues as Paul describes Jesus as our cornerstone in Ephesians 2 and ourselves being living stones built together into the temple of God described by Peter in 1 Peter 2. Christ is our better remembrance stone. The stones of the Old Testament were valuable in the sense that they did point to God's promise, but they are not they are not living the way that our God is living. They could point to us to see what God has done, but in no way are they comparable or equal to the Christ that we serve now. Remembering what God has done for each of us, both personally and corporately, should cause us to trust more. Our own lives are testament to a God that both makes promises and keeps promises. Remembering these kept promises by God should build our faith and trust in the Lord. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He will persevere all he has predestined to say from the foundation of the world. Beyond remembering, though, we have to recognize. And that brings us to point two. We are to recognize God's grace and power. In what God is doing for us and to us. We move on in Joshua 24 at verse 8. We see that Joshua is now moving from talking about in the past to what he's going to talk about essentially is the present. So he's going to be talking about this current generation of Israelites that are in Canaan and working their way to secure the land that God has promised them. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I did not listen to Balaam. Instead, I blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Joshua is now moving into the point where he is specifically showing the people how God is working to lead and care for them currently. This last message from Joshua to the people comes after they have been to Jericho and Ai. They have conquered the the southern portion of Canaan and much of the north. This current generation is actively experiencing God leading them. They are eyewitnesses to his power at Jericho. They experienced corporate chastisement at the first battle of Ai. They also removed sin from their camp and were brought back into right relationship with God and were victorious at the second battle of Ai. God describes to his people what he has done for them. He brought their enemies into their hands. He blessed them when Balaam was brought in to curse them. God provided them with cities and food and cultivated lands that they themselves did not create. God is showing his people that he is their defender and provider. He is their strength. The people did not earn this. They were described as recipients. Of God's goodness. We also have seen God's power and grace in our lives. The moment you became a Christian, you experienced God's power to change his enemy into his son. Before God saved you, you were his sworn enemy. You were a child of wrath. God owed you nothing. You rightly had earned spiritual death due to your own sin. But God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 You were brought from slavery to sin into freedom under Christ. You were adopted, made a co-heir with Christ, and given heavenly citizenship. You were declared legally justified by God. You also were given the Holy Spirit to indwell you. God put you in his, this room at this local church and gave you these brothers as fellow heirs. All who were here were brought to this place at the same time. When you look around this room, the Lord brought you these brothers. If you consider yourself a son of the, of the God of the universe, this is your family. These are your brothers. The Lord brought us all here today for this meal and this message. We all came from different backgrounds. My background is a much different background than my brother John's. And maybe without the Lord, we might not have ever been connected in any sort of connection. But because Jesus Christ pulled both of us up from the sin that we were in, that we were languishing in, and made us adopted sons into his family, we can rightly look at each other and call each other brothers, even though our backgrounds are very different. Number three. The exhortation, choose this day, both is and isn't a choice. An exhortation to us as well as to the people of Israel. Starting at 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord... Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in this region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Joshua gives the people a clear call to faith and obedience to Yahweh. He exhorts the people to be sincere in their faith and obedient to God. For sure, many in that gathering were absolutely being insincere in their faith towards God. Their idols made of stone or wood testified against them. These idols were not or newly invented by this generation of Israel. Idol worship was not something that Joshua's generation had all of a sudden thought of. It was something that they had carried for a very long time because it's in the heart of every sinful person to have an idol. This generation's predecessors and ancestors had been likewise entangled in idol worship, even before the golden calf. We talk about nowadays, we look at, why are the kids the way that they are? Well, the kids didn't raise themselves. They were raised by a generation that allowed nonsense to grow into them. They, they built it into them, or they allowed it to grow, and they were neglectful in raising them. So when we say, "Oh, well, look at the kids these days, well, you got to put that on their parents. Many were trying to make true monotheism of worshiping God into some sort of Yahweh plus polytheism where they could have both gods and be able to cover both of their bases just in case. And our God is not a God that wants to share his glory with anyone. Certainly not an inanimate object that doesn't exist as any sort of deity. Talks about in Isaiah 44, uh, Isaiah makes a good depiction of talking about this idol worship where one end of the wood you, you cut off and you carve it into an idol that you bow down and worship. But then the other half of where you got your idol, you put it in the fire and you warm up your food with it. Like those things just don't make sense to anyone who has a rational view and understanding of a real God versus false idols. Joshua even goes so far as to point those who despise God in their hearts to any of the numerous false gods that they either were familiar with in Canaan or that were carried around in and through the hearts of the people from Egypt. The choice Joshua gives them, though, is no real choice at all. Rejection of God for some idol gains the worshiper nothing because that God, made of stone or wood, is nothing. Joshua is basically telling the congregation of Israel that if they don't worship God, but rather, one of these false idols. That it doesn't really, ma- it doesn't really matter which one. Pick any of them. None of them are real, because they are all equally worthless and not real. If any of them were even real or were worth worshiping, then they would have been able to stop the God of Israel from doing all that He had done to their followers. Those idols are nothing but they also are a big deal because they draw our heart away from God. This idolatry in the heart is not limited to the past or to just those who live on other continents deep and far from Western civilization. We sometimes think of, oh, idolatry is that little stone statue that we might see in Indiana Jones movies where the people are worshiping Kali Mall or whatever in Temple of the Doom. But no, that's not necessarily all that all that idolism encompasses. Let's not think we are free from the temptation of idolatry and our ability to steal the worship and focus that Christ deserves in our own lives. We don't have stone idols or wood idols in our homes that we're probably worshipping, but for many in western civilization, they have idols nonetheless. Money, power, safety, prestige, possessions, personal freedom, and a myriad of other things can all be idols when not subjugated under the cross. In his book, Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin says, we may infer that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. The human heart wants something to worship, but in our sin, we look for anything to worship except for the God of the universe." Left to our own devices, we will find something to worship. There is no atheist. The atheist just worships something else, pretending that he has no worship to give. Without us daily looking to Christ alone as our source of life, joy, and fulfillment, even our redeemed hearts can wander from God into an idolatrous mire for a time. Who can even choose to serve God? Simply put, no one, all who are the beloved, as described by Paul in Ephesians 1, are the beloved precisely because it is not up to us. If left to our own devices, nobody here would choose God, even if they were capable of choosing God. You would not choose God. I'm sorry for the for any free will brothers in here that think you choose. No, you cannot and you would not. But God, in his mercy... And for his glory, chose a people for himself. Every single person whom God adopted, he chose before the foundation of the world. From our limited perspective, we can't see the end. We can't see the beginning. To us, we may feel and it may look as if we are choosing God. It's through his word, though, that we recognize God, in fact, chose us. God's choosing of us did not come about because of anything we had done. Or even any potential that he saw in us. Simply, it was done to the praise of his glorious grace, according to Ephesians. And that brings us to four. The declaration. But as for me and my house. Our declaration. And I'm going to wrap up with just the first half of verse 15. I'm going to leave it here. There's plenty more that could be said and lots that could be meditated upon for the rest of chapter 24. But I'm going to I'm going to wrap it up here as my conclusion almost. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua makes his declaratory statement to the congregation of Israel. This is a popular verse that people look to for encouragement and a declaration of and a declaration of their desires to serve God, Joshua is not guaranteeing that his genetic bloodline will always serve God. I'm sure he led his children in the things of God and pointed them to God. They saw his life and his obedience and his faith to God. Yet none of that would, in and of itself, drive his offspring to a true faith in God. We know that. Only the Lord can take a darkened heart Of stone and make it a heart of flesh. Men, many of you are currently leading families just as Joshua declared. God has made himself real to you. He called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He has blessed you and charged you with the spiritual guidance of your family. Are you doing it? Does your wife see you teaching your kids the things of God and explaining? what he has done for you and to you? Do your kids see you guarding your wife, protecting her and leading her towards a greater trust and faith in God? We all can look at days of our lives when that answer would be a flat no. What I'm talking about though is a pattern of life that you live in front of your family. Would they see that God has grabbed hold of your heart and shaking it? in such a way that is to such a degree that its attention, its affection, and its desire is to serve and love God. If yes, then amen. If it's sometimes or kind of, you need to repent to your family. It may be hard in that moment, but that's what we're called to do when we've wronged someone. Man, you are responsible to lead your family. God gave you that charge. And if you're not taking it seriously, you need to start. I look back, I, I, my kids are pretty reasonable in, in, in terms of the world. They don't steal. They don't rob. But I've got a son that I don't know that he's saved. And I have to talk to him about the things of God got and point him. I have a daughter who is, but she's 23. And I've got to fight with the world who's telling her one story. And I have to be there to give her the, the, where it's wrong and point her to what's right. And there are times when I'm very good at it. But there were times in the past where I was not very good at it. Don't do that. If you've done that, today, stop. you got to get off that horse. Get on one that's good. Do what the Lord has called you to do. Those who God has given wives and children to have a critical task. It's more important than our pride. Apologize if you've done that. If you recognize... I'm not leading them the way that they deserve. Go and apologize to them. Explain to them that the God who can forgive you gives you the ability to ask for forgiveness when you wrong someone. Your kids and your wife are too important to not. To our younger men in this room, you may not have a wife or kids at this moment, but God has still called you to obedience and faith. Are you being obedient to your parents that God gave you Are you taking the good examples of faithful adults that God has given you as a precious blessing? Embrace that blessing. It's something that God gave you. Not everyone gets that opportunity that you have to have parents that fear God and strive to follow him. So, especially like my younger guys. You guys are so blessed to have parents that care enough about the Lord that they will bring you here not only on Sunday mornings, but Sunday afternoons, Wednesdays, and even the odd Saturday lunch. There are many of us in this room that did not have godly parents to do that for us. That doesn't invalidate that what, that what the blessing that parents were that God has given us. But you guys are super blessed. The world says you're privileged. And they use that as a negative. No. It's the opposite. You are so blessed to have a mom and a dad who care way more about God than, the, than this world does, enough that they will keep you from doing nonsense and they will point you into the direction of righteousness. You should look at them as an incredible blessing. You may not have a house yet, as Joshua did, or as some of us do, but you still can say, if you are redeemed, I will serve the Lord. So at the end, gentlemen, are you serving the Lord? Look inside. You'll know. Examine yourself. See that you are in the faith. See that you are doing the important things that God has called you to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to be able to teach. God, I... I don't know how to respond to you dragging all of us up from the sin that rightly separated us from you. Yet you did it to the praise of your glorious grace, God. Thank you for this time to be able to share with the men. Lord, I pray that the things that were shared today are things that truly came from your word and that people see that it is life to them to be able to apply your word to their life. God, thank you for everything you provided us Lord keep us safe for the rest of this weekend and please make the Lord's day tomorrow one in which again that your word is openly and loudly shared with the congregation we love you so much amen